Welcome again to Free Associations, the Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who ever wanted to know more about how to digest the latest health study. I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health at Boston University, and I'm an HIV researcher, and we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. Before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange, the Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at populationhealthexchange.org, where you'll find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. So today in our first segment, we are going to go back in time and look at the paper that started off the measles, mumps, rubella, otherwise known as the MMR vaccine, the MMR vaccine and autism controversy, and try to understand how this study, which turned out to be a fraud, and I do want to emphasize that, was ever published in The Lancet in the first place. In the second part of the podcast, we are going to talk about how peer review works and whether or not the system is, in fact, broken. And then in our amazing and amusing segment, we'll talk about things that leave us speechless or make us spit milk out of our noses. Now, before we get into our first segment, let me introduce you to my two partners. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Chris Gill. Chris, can you introduce yourself? Hey, Matt. Uh, Good morning, everybody, or good day. Since uh, podcasts are time uh, independent, variables. Uh, I'm an infectious disease uh, doc by training and a clinical epidemiologist, and I work at the Department of Global Health at BU. And Dr. Don Thea, can you introduce yourself? Thanks, Matt. Uh, my name is Don Thea. I'm also a professor of global health at the Boston University School of Public Health, and I'm an infectious disease specialist, just like Chris is. All right, so let's get into our first segment. So. For this one, we're going to go back to the late 1990s to see if we can understand why there is still a mistaken belief by some out there that MMR causes autism. And so this all stems from a 1998 paper by Andrew Wakefield and colleagues published in one of the top medical journals called The Lancet, which the title is baffling to me. Uh, Don, you probably should read it because I can't even get through this. Ileal lymphoid nodular hyperplasia, nonspecific colitis, and pervasive development disorder in children. Yep, that's what I would have said. It's a mouthful. I want to, and I want to emphasize that this article has been debunked, and it has since been retracted by the Lancet, though, or by the authors in the Lancet. Um, um, though it, it, it not did, all the authors, not all the authors. Fair enough. We'll get to that. Um, though it did take years to do so. And we want to start off by looking at how it ever got published, and as it is a deeply flawed study on its own. Uh, And then we'll get into the fraud that was later discovered. Um, And because the study is so old and has been retracted, I can't get any news articles out from the time when it came out. But I will say this one was quite big in the popular press, which is what is believed to have created a lot of fear around uh, measles vaccine, uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and vaccines in general. So, uh, Don, let me start with you by asking you to describe this study and what they claim to have found. um, And tell us about how you would have approached this had you been a peer reviewer of this article? Um, Sure, Matt. So uh, this is um, a study of 12 children who were referred to a clinic in um, the UK, a clinic that had supposedly established itself as being interested in studying the phenomenon for which these children were referred. It really is a case series. It's it's, it's not so much of a study as it's it's really um, an evaluation of 12 children who were referred to these these clinics. And these 12 children um, were referred because they had symptoms of gastrointestinal um, disease. They had diarrhea um, and they had malabsorption. And they also had something that the uh, authors call regressive development disorder, What's which that? which is which is um, essentially autism that develops after a normal period of norm of of uh, psychodevelopment in uh, in the children. So it's regressive because it happens after a normal period. And what they did um, in these children was that they did a whole series of evaluations, both of the gut as well as of the central nervous system, including um, endoscopy, um, um, MRI evaluations, EEG, which is electroencephalography evaluations of the children. They did lumbar punctures, and they um, looked for a number of... um, Chemical abnormalities in the CSF that they that they got from these children. CSF. I'm sorry, cerebrospinal fluid. Got it. Um, and they um, also did behavioral um, evaluations to try to document um, what the behavioral abnormalities in these in these kids were. And um, essentially, they found that all of the children um, 
as reported by these authors, had abnormalities of the gut that were that were detected on um, either biopsy or by functional studies. They also confirmed that all of these children, in fact, had autism or what they what they called regressive developmental um, disorder. And their conclusions were that. Um, the, that because all of these abnormalities, so stated by the authors, occurred after these children were vaccinated with a measles, mump, rubella vaccination, and that the onset, as reported by these authors, of these conditions occurred t- um, relatively soon after they received these MMR vaccinations, they felt that there was very good evidence to suggest that, in fact, These abnormalities, both of the gut and of the central nervous system that they were observing, were due to the MMR vaccination that they had received just previously. And I think it was I think it was eight of the twelve had had received vaccination shortly before the time of the onset of the symptoms. So 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 a large proportion of them. Right. And and so it sounds to me like what what you're saying is from from what they actually gave to the the Lancet, their write up of. Their of their methods and their and their study results, they did some pretty thorough investigations on these kids. That this wasn't just sort of a uh, they did they you know they 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 might have had something and you know they may they they may or may not have had uh, the MMR vaccine shortly before. This was this was was fairly extensive. It sounds like it was very extensive. In fact, it was invasive. And and I think Highly. part part of the criticism of, of this paper, sort of separate from from the, uh, the 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 veracity of the findings were, were sort of the, the the ethical posture of the of these investigators because they you know doing a biopsy doing an intestinal biopsy is not a benign procedure doing a cerebrospinal fluid lumbar puncture spinal it, tap otherwise known as a spinal mm-hmm. tap right yeah. is 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 an invasive procedure and i think i think you know the the the, the reasons why they perform these these tests are are very sketchy in this okay. in this setting all right so so Chris, I want to turn to you. So, so if you were a peer reviewer of this paper back in 1997, let's say, it was published in 98, I believe? Uh, correct. So 1997, you get this paper. Would you have uh, said that it should be published? Um, Hard question to answer, I know. Uh, I mean, it's difficult because we we often, um, you know, we all we, we frequently publish uh, individual case reports as hypothesis generating observations, and as we know, sometimes these are incredibly valuable. and And I think one of the, you know, the the the, the famous examples of this was the, were the original case reports of HIV syndrome, you right. know, the uh, I guess pneumocystis pneumoniae in young, otherwise previously healthy men in in, in New York and California. So it's not that this is a uh, necessarily flawed process. Um, but as you as you read through the paper and you read through the implications of the paper, there is a there's a tone that is pervasive through that that is that assumes guilt. And and when when guilt, in fact guilt that the MMR, that the MMR is, is causally is, is guilty leading to the syndrome. Absent prior uh, you know evidence that this sh- should be so and absent a biologically plausible plausible mechanism by which this would be so. And as you go through the 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 case series uh, and again to emphasize to the the, the listeners, this means that the, there were no controls. So we're looking at a series of individuals who had been evaluated, and essentially they did an exhaustive uh, set of battery of tests on, on these children with what amounts to a fishing expedition. You know, literally dozens and dozens of tests, many of which are highly esoteric, like urine methylmalonic acid levels. Uh, looking for what exactly? And, and, you know, we've talked in previous podcasts about, you know, when when you're doing um, secondary data analyses and you start to sort of look at multiple associations, are you likely to find something by happenstance? And so it, it felt like they were looking for evidence of something that they could then pin on this and create this, you know. But this all, you know, crumbles when you start to look at the, at the fraud that follows after. So the initial article felt to me like it was way ahead of its skis in terms of making the assertions it had with really no hypothesis behind it and a very, very strange like new syndrome that actually didn't describe the vast majority of, of autism at all. So the whole thing felt very, very peculiar to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's quite problematic to, 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 to draw conclusions from a case series. Case series, as we just discussed, this twelve. This is twelve kids, and let's assume for the moment that that the information actually was accurate, which, which we'll it get wasn't. into in a minute. It wasn't, but let's assume for a minute it's accurate. It's still it's twelve kids, and it's twelve kids that were selected, 
I mean, it's not totally clear from the article, but they say it sort of sequentially. But I think that's a really good point because I think one of the things that 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 subsequently was found out about this paper was that um, though the authors say we investigated a consecutive series, a consecutive series of twelve children with these with these problems, that implies that they're looking at these referrals one after another, and suddenly they see twelve consecutive cases, which could be an indication of a point source outbreak or some new phenomenon. But that was. And, and even though that was specifically stated by the authors, it was untrue. It was absolutely a, a falsehood. And, and, and it gives the reader a false sense that the data are better than they are. Untrue, and, and I think also implausible, almost, that, that, that the only way you could have uh, a series of cases that in which all 12 of them in a row had the same you know, sets of, of symptoms would be in a place that was specifically referring for this particular set of conditions. or it was fraud. Always but fraud. I, I, I do yeah. want to go back to, to the idea that you, we don't draw conclusions from a case series. You know, if you if we people tend to get very concerned when they see clustering of cases of anything, particularly let's say cases of cancer, uh, and we get especially concerned when they are clustering around a power plant, something mm-hmm. like that, and we we immediately jump to the conclusion that there's a cluster of cases, there is a power plant, therefore the power plant caused the the cluster of cases. The reason we don't draw those conclusions is. Cancer occurs, uh, not randomly, but is distributed throughout the United States. You would expect that some cases of cancer are going to occur around power plants. And so just by chance, whether even if they're not causally related, you're going to find things clustering around other things that doesn't make them causal. And so even in this case, if you have, you know, 12 cases that are, are a vast majority of them have the MMR vaccine in relation, doesn't make it causal. And that's why we have a comparison group. This is sort of what we refer to in epidemiology as A-cell epidemiology. So if you have epidemiologists thinking two-by-two tables, you have your exposure on one (laughs) one axis, your outcome on the other, and we try and correlate things that way. The A-cell is the exposed cases, and it's when you try and draw conclusions based only on the exposed cases, which isn't exactly what they've done here, but it's largely what they've done. It's what they've done. Yeah. Yes. It it really is. They've said, we we found these things. They're together. We don't have any comparison. They had some comparison for the... the, for the the gastro issues, but not for the MMR. But let, let's let's bring it back to this issue of of uh, a, a plausible causality. When when one is looking at adverse events from a drug or for a device or from a vaccine, you you want to see that there's an exposure, say, to the vaccine in this case, and then some onset of symptoms that that follows relatively shortly thereafter. Um, and and so you know the tighter the clustering of those two events, the more likely there is to be a causal event. And so I'll give you an example, like you know hulking football player age 14 goes in to see his primary care physician and gets his dose of Gardasil and faints and falls on the floor and fractures his clavicle. Probably causal. Caused by the Gardasil vaccine? No. Caused by his shock at having been vaccinated because, you know, hulking 14-year-old men are often terrified of needles. Is that and true? F- actually, it is true. Do you know that they, have, they, they do. They have a, a significantly higher rate of, of fainting after vaccination than, than, than women of the same age. Um, interestingly, I want to see the data yeah, on that. Yeah. Give us the data we can do that. this in a future right. podcast. Bring that one in. <laughs> I don't yeah, want to it. It's a good one. It's a good one. Okay. At any rate, um, so, you know, there you would say there's a strong association of causality, but then you also have to think about biological causality. Yep. So if Pl- someone gets a plausibility, right. So someone is vaccinated on day one against the MMR and in day 10 develops lymphoma. You're saying like, wait a minute, how does vaccination cause lymphoma? That That's totally implausible. Or, you know, even more implausibly, someone is vaccinated on day one and then is bitten by a dog on the way home from the clinic. You know, are vaccines leading to dog bites? Do they change the smell of your sweat in some way that makes dogs irresistibly bite you? I mean, you know, you have to sort I of think, not. does it make sense? Yep. And and here they're, they're arguing that this was plausible because the relationship in time was very tight. The problem okay. was that those data were totally made up. So, so take us into, t- t- talk us through the Brian Deere investigation. Yeah, so the, the, this is an, an, an extraordinary set of papers. It's really amazing. And, and I really, really encourage the listeners to go and read them because th- like every paragraph is a jaw dropper. And I just want to, I want to start with one, which was- well, Before you start, just- 
just say who he was and what he did. Uh, Brian Deere was an investigative reporter for the uh, the Sunday Times, yep. a major newspaper in uh, and uh, London. He was um, uh, interested in the Wakefield MMR event because at that time Wakefield was being investigated by the Medical Council for ethical violations that ultimately led to the revocation of his medical license in Great Britain. So their their focus was on the ethics, but Brian Deere's focus was now that all the records of these children had been opened um, as part of the investigation, could he then go back and reconcile them with the primary data in the Lancet paper to see if the claims actually matched the medical records? And he found that of the 12 cases, all 12 had evidence of, of tampering or outright fabrication. And, and meaning, of, that, meaning that he either made them up or he changed the data to suit the hypothesis. Exactly. So let me, let me just read you one here. So this is child number 11. So a record show that the child 11's uh, symptoms began too soon. His developmental milestones, in quotes here, this is according to his discharge summary, his medical record, his developmental milestones were normal until 13 months of age. In the period 13 to 18 months, he developed slow speech patterns and repetitive hand movements. And over this period, his parents remarked on his slow, gradual deterioration. But what this meant is that his symptoms, which would later be uh, diagnosed as autism, began actually one month prior to his having received the MMR, not after. And I assume before. the Lancet paper says that? It does not. What does it, it say in the it Lancet reverses paper? The, it reverses the direction of causality. It claims that the MMR preceded the onset of autism when, in fact, the medical records prove the child already had autism before he received the MMR. And this was not the only one. And, yeah, and the same thing is true in almost all of the cases, that the behavioral problems preceded the receipt of the MMR vaccine. Yes, it's, 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 it is just astonishing. Um, and I think... He, he puts together, he, Brian Deere, has a set of bullet points at the end that sort of summarize the key points. And, and I'm going to read them to you because I think they're salient. So, the Lancet paper was a case series of 12 patients, child patients, that reported a proposed new syndrome of enterocolitis and regressive autism and associated this with the MMR as an apparent precipitating event. But in fact... Three of the nine children reported with regressive autism did not have autism diagnosed at all. Bullet point two, despite the paper claiming that all children were previously normal, five had documented pre-existing developmental conditions, which would later be diagnosed as autism. Some children reported to have experienced first behavioral symptoms within days of the MMR, but the records documented these as starting, in most cases, many months after the vaccination. Um, and so then, the timing doesn't check out. And the timing doesn't check out. Now, the second part of, of this was this syndrome of abnormal, what they call uh, atypical colitis, yep. uh, nonspecific colitis, we'll I think was that. the specific term, the nonspecific colitis. Now, this also is fascinating because the, the colitis is an inflammation of the intestine, and that is diagnosed by taking a biopsy of the intestinal wall and making slides of this and looking for the evidence of inflammatory cells within the biopsy. Now, when... when most of these children's biopsies were done. They were originally read by the pathologist at the Royal Free Hospital in London as being completely normal. Oh. Later on, later on, the senior author, Walker Smith, Dr. Walker Smith, went back and changed the diagnoses to nonspecific colitis. I didn't realize that. It wasn't Wakefield? No, no. this was his senior author. So, right. so Wakefield was not, was not the only one who, who shared in the blame here. He was, the, he was clearly the most egregious, but Walker Smith was also not blameless. Yikes. Um, and and Don, with the, my understanding is there were also issues around uh, Wakefield's participation in legal claims against the manufacturers of of the MMR vaccine. Right, right. He was um, on the payroll of a law firm and um, providing um, evidence as an expert witness in a lawsuit that um, he was participating in that preceded the publication of this paper. And that lawsuit was trying to show that the MMR vaccine, in fact. Um, was suboptimal, and he was he was working with this law firm that was representing a different manufacturer of a different measles maxi vaccine. So he had a clear conflict of interest in terms of um, publishing this paper and having and and having the the results of this paper be very biased and very skewed against the MMR vaccine. Matt. At any point in this paper, did you notice that conflict of interest declared? I specifically looked for it, and it is not declared. It is not it declared. Is not declared at all. There is no, there is no note. There is normally in a, in a journal article. There's a section where you declare your conflicts of interest. Uh, there are there there is none of that. Now this was 1998, where things were were done differently from the way that they are done now. But no, that is not that is not disclosed 
anywhere that I could see. Because it does seem to me pertinent that if one had been Highly paid pertinent. over 400,000, 400,000 British pounds, so multiply by 1.6. Worth more then than they were <laughs> than they are now. Yep. Uh, but yes, back in 1998, so maybe probably multiply by 2.1. I don't mm-hmm. know what the number is. No, but no, I, was, I think it's 1.6 it, back it was then. A lot. Yeah. It was a lot of money. Yep. Uh, by a tort lawyer suing the MMR for which you an MMR expert witness, and uh, Andrew Wakefield himself held the patent on the replacement M- measles vaccine that would have replaced the discredited MMR. Clear conflicts. Holy moly. I, I think one of the other things that, that's really interesting about this, and we've talked about um, uh, this issue in uh, about prior papers, and that's the issue of recall bias. And Absolutely. a lot of the description of the behavioral abnormalities and the onset of the behavioral abnormalities were as reported by the mothers. And I think there's two really important issues that, that directly feed into this. And one is that this quote-unquote consecutive series of 12 kids were largely referred by individuals who had a bias themselves against, they were anti-vaxxers in 1988. The other thing is that apparently um, Andrew Wakefield himself called up many of these participants before they were enrolled in the study. And they talked, he talked with um, the mothers or or the caregivers of these children extensively before they were enrolled into the study, therefore giving an ample opportunity to affect the recall of these mothers whose timing was so critical to, 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 in his mind, creating this false association. So, so clearly this was, this was both a, a flawed study, not so flawed necessarily that it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have merited publication, possibly not in the, in the Lancet. But a fraudulent the, study. But once you get into the fraud, it clearly is, is way beyond the, the pale of what, what, what really could have, have ever been uh, stomached. And, and, the, and the, the question is, what were the, what were the, um, what were the consequences? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really really important issue, and 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 one of the things that I came up with was a um, an article that was just recently published, May eighth, t- um, twenty seventeen, in Stat Health by Helen Bronswell. It's a really good article that I uh, I, I uh, refer the listeners to. But what what she what she did is that she went to um, the Somali community. There's a community of thirty two thousand um, Somali refugees who are in um, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And it turns out that um, Andrew Wakefield, this is now, this is, you know, years later, has paid at least two visits to this community and talked to these um, Somali refugees because the Somali refugees noticed that there were a couple of cases in their community of autism that had been previously diagnosed. And that was not a concept that they were familiar with before they emigrated to the United States. So Wakefield seized on this opportunity, convinced them that it was the MMR vaccine. This is now. This is happening now. And so their their MMR vaccination rate has fallen from the 90th um, percent to about 40 percent. And hence, this year, there was a large outbreak of 48 cases of measles in this community. And I think that's important for people to realize that measles is not a benign disease. Measles, measles can cause pneumonia, can cause encephalitis, and it can cause death. The estimates are that two out of every thousand cases of measles results in death. I mean, that's, it's a huge, huge problem. It's a bad disease. That's, it, it, it's, it's a real problem. And this is the, this is the study that launched the, the uh, I won't say it launched the anti-vaccination movement because that was already in existence. But this is the study that led to large drops in vaccination rates that have been documented, particularly in the UK. Uh, and it was all based on average science had it been a, a, a decent study, a, a, a legitimate study. But in fact, it turned out to be a, a fraudulent study. Don, Don and I were looking at the um, the MMR, the measles, mumps, and rubella uh, disease incident statistics in the United Kingdom before and after the Wakefield paper. Sort of said so taking 1998 as the point where the paper was, was reduced, the point where the snowball was pushed down the hill and became an avalanche. Um, and actually, the, the the measles cases were relatively constant, but the mumps cases went through the roof because this is the second component. You can't omit the measles part of the MMR by itself. The entire MMR is lost. And so, in the in the years prior to 1998, there were between I think what we saw was like 90 and 170 cases of mumps in the United Kingdom per year. Not very much. And in the decade that followed, the cases soared to well over 4,000 per year. Massive. So an incredible fraud that uh, clearly. 
we are paying the consequences. We are feeling the consequences of still to this day. I want to move on, uh, get into our second segment. So what I want to talk about is, is relates to what we just talked about, and we can continue talking about the Wakefield example if we want to, but I want to talk about the peer review process itself. And, and the idea here is that the, the paper that ends up in The Lancet doesn't actually just show up at The Lancet and they decide for themselves we're going to publish this or we're not. We have a process in, in science, scientific publishing um, called the peer review process by which we subject all manuscripts to criticism by uh, people who should have expertise in the particular field, and they get to determine what the limitations are, what the flaws are, whether or not the study is fundamentally flawed, and they make a recommendation as to whether or not it goes forward. So, Don, can you sort of talk us through your experiences with the peer review system in the sense of, do you think it's a good system for determining what should and should not be published? Does it work? Um, how often do you do you engage in it? And, uh, you know, do we have anything better? Um it is the best we have, in my opinion. It, 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 is, a, it is a system, I think, that um, should be relatively unbiased, although I think that there's um, a lot of problem with some, some reviewers um, being um, a little bit biased in terms of how they interpret um, the quality uh, and, and, and rigor of, of papers that are, that are sent to them. And uh, you know, having, having submitted a number of papers and gotten reviews back where there were comments that were just real head-slamming. <laughs> Slammer comments. I just didn't understand them. Yep, yep. Hard to come to the conclusion that they 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 were either knowledgeable in the field um, or that they didn't have some sort of axe to grind um, about that particular submission. But by and large, I think that it's a it's a good process, and um, and it it, it uh, it's functioning fairly well. Although I think that there are recently some severe threats to the peer review process. You want to you want to say some more about what what. What your concerns are? Yeah, my concerns are that um, it's 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 it really goes along the law of unintended consequences. There's been a a movement to make the scientific literature much more accessible to the the world's population, and particularly in areas like um, the low and middle income countries, where uh, a subscription to a journal, which they tend to be very expensive, is really not a, not a possibility. So there has been a movement over the course of the last ten years for. Um, uh, it's called the open access journal movement, um, where the authors pay money to um, have their their papers published once they have um, been accepted for review and they've passed a particular quality threshold. And I think the unintended consequence of this is that it appears to have created an absolutely excellent business model yeah. for generating money. And so there have has been this incredible proliferation of what we, what we now call predatory journals. And uh, there, there are now lists being kept of journals that are um, absolutely um, without any kind of real rigorous peer review. And in fact, there was, there was an, an article that was published in, in, in Science recently <laughs> about one of, their, one of their journalists who created um, a series of papers that that he very intentionally made up the data. He very intentionally created the the methodology in these papers to be awful. Sent them out to uh, th something like 350 journals, and the acceptance rate and the acceptance rate without revisions um, in, amongst these predatory journals were was just shocking. Um, so I, so I think that it, it really has implications for us in the scientific um, community, um, but, but it also has, I think it's really important to understand that it has serious impact in terms of the scientific, uh, the consuming, the, the, the public who consumes um, the scientific information. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a strange system when you go out and try to explain somebody outside of the, of the, the sciences or I suppose anyone who publishes in the, in the, in the literature, that, that essentially you go out there and you create a product, which is your manuscript. You then take it to a journal who then sends it out to other people to decide whether or not it's good or bad or worthy of getting into the literature, and then they make money off of it. Right. Mm -hmm. you are, by either you paying them right. to publish it or them selling subscriptions to drug companies, know, drug companies and universities mm -hmm. and all those people, and they mm -hmm. make money off of it. It is yeah. a bizarre 
bizarre business model. And I, and I think part of, part of what's happening, um, it seems to me, from speaking to some of my colleagues, is that um, that that sense is, is is affecting the willingness of really good reviewers to continue to review because it takes a lot of effort to read a paper and and do an uh, to, to do an adequate review, mm-hmm. and if you feel as if the journal that you just spent hours and hours um, reviewing a scientific paper for then turns around and asks you for four thousand dollars to publish your paper, it's just it's it's really hard not to have a bad taste in your it mouth. It is a about strange that. system. So Chris, what what about you when you when this system goes well, what is working? What is it? What does a good peer review look like for you, either as the reviewer or as the uh, the person doing the review? Okay, that's a that's a very complicated question to that's answer. That's why I uh, asked you. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to feel um, that one myself. Okay, so I will say that I've I've I felt the pinch as the reviewed um, on on many occasions where y- you you know one receives very strange comments um, that don't make much sense. For example, on one paper, uh, and I won't say which, and I don't say who the reviewers were, but we were we were told that we were not allowed to randomize at the level of a certain. Uh, you know, um, this was a cluster randomized trial, and and we had r- cl- defined the cluster in a certain way and randomized. So they didn't like your design. And they didn't your like design. the. They said you, you know, it is un- statistically invalid to, you know, use this form of cluster randomization. And so is that it, or do you get a do you get a response? And we we were rejected, and so and I, and this was this is vexing because you know we had two statisticians on this project, and and uh, they one of whom was you, Matt. Well, I'm not to say <laughs> very said, much. I am not. To be clear, I'm not a statistician. I'm an epidemiologist. Oh, just there is a distinction, and I uh, take it as an insult that you don't know. Felt that. that there was no issue with this, and it was just I'm a, go cry in it, the corner. A, it felt to me a perfectly specious comment. Or you get comments where they, they evidently have not read the, the paper carefully, and they're asking you to provide information that is clearly provided in the paper, um, and so that can be very frustrating. Uh, on the other hand, it is often the case that you will get a, a really good review where they have read your paper carefully, thoughtfully, spotted things you didn't you didn't see, and the paper is is vastly improved for the process. So as Don said, it's it's not a perfect system. Um, it is often helpful and it is often not helpful. Um, but I think what we're I think we're concerned about is on the lower end of where it doesn't go well. Um, Don, you were talking about the Bohannon experiment, I think. John yes, Bohannon. Right, right, from it, Science Magazine. From Science Magazine. Tell me about this. I don't know this. John Bohannon, he was the one who who created the fraudulent data oh, set oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. about some lichen right. fungus that lichen cures cancer. These, that cures these, cancer. These yep. It was ridiculous. Yep. Sophie Go- uh, excuse me, not Sophie Godley, our colleague. Fiona Godley, um, the editor of the BMJ, did a similar experiment a number of years after called the Godley experiment, where they they um, sent out a, a paper that had been created with uh, uh, nine major design flaws and five minor errors. And they sent it out to 607 reviewers, um, informing them that they were part of an experiment where they had oh. packed the paper so they with knew. errors. They, so they knew were what they were getting into. That they had to find the flaws. And the actual, the mean number of flaws that were found was about 2.7 in the best case. uh, From the major errors of the the nine major errors, they only spotted less than a third of them. Um, And And of the minor errors, less than one out of five was spotted by the reviewers. And so just to back up for a second, so the idea of the peer review system is the journal gets the article, some editor gets the article, they send it out, they find experts to send it out to, they review it, send back their comments to the journal, and then the journal gets to decide whether or not they want to send it back to you to let you respond, to make revisions, and then see if they're happy, or they could just reject it outright and say, "We're, we're done with this. And you're saying that in this case, even when... The reviewers knew they were being watched. That they were part of an experiment looking for errors. They couldn't find all the errors. They couldn't find all I, the errors. I, I can't say I'm totally surprised by that. And, and I say that as one of the things that some journals will do, and I really like it when they do this, is they will send you, you do the review, you send it back to the journal, and then the journal will then make a decision, and they will send you, they'll copy you, the reviewer, on the response that they have to the authors, in which case you get to see the other reviewers' comments. Very helpful. It's very helpful because it teaches you how to, you know, do a uh, peer review Because we're all calibrating. But you also notice they don't often, you know, there are often things that overlap, but there are things they picked up that I didn't, things that I picked up that they didn't, and I think that's sort of a, a helpful tool. But I also, you know, when I think about the peer review process, one of the things that always worries me is the fact that if in an ideal world, what you'd do is you'd find the people who are the world's experts on this particular topic and you'd send it to them and they would sit down and 
read it and read it again and then they'd mull it over for a week and read it again and then they'd send their comments back and they'd make a decision. The reality is the people who are the world's expert on this topic have very little time to contribute to this. So they either do it and agree to do it and do it very quickly or they don't do it and it then gets sent to me who has no expertise on this <laughs> yep. and I review it for – and I mean this I do actually do this sometimes. I will read papers that I don't have – the uh, expertise on the topic matter, but I have the expertise in the design uh, and conduct of, of trials, and I can at least review from that standpoint. But I, I can't make the the detailed comments that you would probably want, and so I think it's a, it's a a system that you're right. It's the best that we have. Uh, I'm not sure we we have any alternatives, but I do think it's something that that there are clear. Flaws. Don, no, you want the last word on this one? Not the last word. I just there was just an issue that I, I was uh, I thought it would be interesting to 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 bring up and discuss, and I'd love to hear what you, what your thoughts are. It, it used to be that um, peer review was always anonymous, mm -hmm. and there are some yep. journals now that are are um, saying if you review this, we are going to make your identity known to the writer of this particular paper. The British the the to the writer of the paper to the writer of the paper. Okay. So both non, sides know non anonymous review. And I think that that has, to a certain extent, a chilling effect on some people who might um, have a tendency to review or might have a tendency to be very brutally honest about a, a, about a paper. Um, and I think it cuts both, both ways. I'm curious, how do you guys feel about that? Chris? Um, I, I'm in favor of it. I think, I think, I think transparency is, is better in almost all cases. And I, and I, and I take your point that having being anonymous allows you to, in some ways, be more candid, but it it it's, it it lends itself to abuse so easily. That isn't that the lesson and of the internet. That's the problem. Yes, that <laughs> that when you when you can say something without fear that the people who you said something snarky about or said something misleading about or hatcheted in some ways, if they know who you are. It's very hard to get away with that. Whereas I think this this uh, enforces a certain civility and. Uh, you know, forces them to sort of focus on the actual methodological issues. So I, I think in general, it's a good thing, even though your, your point is absolutely correct. It is a little bit unnerving to know that you, they know who you are. You have to be very careful about how you say things then. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think they should, they, I mean, it seems to be a, a, an area ripe for experimentation. I mean, what if, what if you, what if you, you, you submitted your, your reviews and they told you, okay, when you, when you submit your reviews, there's going to be what, uh, you know, one in ten chance that we're gonna we're gonna open up the reviews, and not only we're gonna send it to the, to the authors, we're gonna publish it on the internet. Well, you know, that's a one in ten chance, so I might be a little bit more honest, but at least then I I I would I would probably not say all those nasty things that I normally say. You know, some journals have to be taken. Fair, it, I don't say nasty things. Some journals have taken it one step uh, further lately, where they publish the peer the review BMJ. process on the website itself, so that the readers can also see the peer review trail. Yeah, the BMJ has been has been at the forefront of this movement. I, you know, it, it has pros and cons, and I think that uh, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, and let's see where it goes. Uh, but I, I think there are a lot of a lot of options for for where this could go. I, I have two factoids that All I just right. want to throw in here. Chris gets the last word then. Um, uh, published by. Fang et al., I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, I'm sorry, in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2012. This was a, a paper looking at the reasons for journals to retract papers. Retract. Retract so that papers. means what? Um, it means that the, the journal has decided that the paper is... is um, a paper that's been published. That's been published must be retracted because it is in, incorrect for some reason. It need not be a nefarious reason, but, you know, maybe they got the, you know... They rounded pi off as three instead of three point one four, etc. It's fake science. Fake science. So they, or no, no, they made a mistake. But but the interesting thing about this is that the the leading category for the reasons of retraction uh, in the last few years has emerged as fraud, um, where it used to be a minority. And I don't know if that's an artifact of how papers are 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 visible and whether and the fact that more and more data sets are now posted online. Well, or there's the possibility that we have we have greater ability to with computer technology and things to to generate what can look like uh, a plausible paper, or that we've created incentives that foster fraud. I'm not sure which of these is. What, 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 what do you mean by incentives? Um, professional uh, pressures to the, publish the or perish. Push to to publish and publish in high quality journals is so high that if you're not succeeding, you are 
feeling under pressure to... Or, the, or that our tools for detecting plagiarism are much better than they were sure. right. previously. That's right. Um, but fraud is now the leading category for reasons of retraction. And uh, they, they provide a fascinating list of the papers that have been retracted in rank order and the number of times they have been cited. And leading the list oh, of boy. the most highly cited retracted like paper in history is Andrew Wakefield's paper in The Lancet How many times has it been cited? Uh, this was as of 2012, 758 times. So oh, my, my question boy. is, does that go into his H index? <laughs> So the H index is a quantitative measure of how many times your papers have been cited by others. And, and as, as an academic, you want as high an H index as possible. And it may be that all of those citations were because they were describing this as a fraudulent paper. Oh, that's so interesting. Our citations anyway, and they would go into his H index. So, you know, oh, so his academic stature could paradoxically be increasing. Yeah, the H, I mean, the citation indexes don't take into account no. whether it's negative coverage. We're actually going to come back to the H index in the, in the amazing and amusing. But all right, let's stop there. But I do want to point out uh, that this it's a great second segment topic for another show, this idea of whether uh, papers that contain mistakes should be retracted or whether if you're doing your best effort and all papers have mistakes, they shouldn't be published. And we can Come back to that. I think what they should time. do is they should give it a, a negative designation so that it nullifies, in fact, all of your other So you can have a negative citation? Right, right. So that would bring down your H index. I Commensurate so, with how, so how many times your fraudulent paper has been can cited. Can you cite something with an emoji? Is there a way to do that? <laughs> I hope not. We need like a, yeah. All right. Anyway. It definitely would be the frowny face. I know you would. I know you would. All right. Let's 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 move on into our uh our last segment, our amazing and amusing segment. Uh, here is our segment where we highlight things that uh, that make us enjoy doing our jobs even more than we already do. Uh, and so we're going to look at some of the weird and wacky things that happen in our field, some of the things that inspire us, some of the things that amaze us, or just make us laugh. All right, uh, Don Thea, what do you got for us this week? Uh, all right, Matt. So I have a paper that was published in um, PLOS One in December of 2013, um, uh, the authors are Helmchen, Palzer, Munte, Anders, and Springer. And I'd like to add that this paper was anointed with the um, Ig Nobel Prize in Medicine in um, last year. And the and the Ig, Nobel, the Ig Nobels? The Ig Nobel Awards are one of the great things about Boston, along with the Red Sox and, and baked beans and clam chowder. But, and the Patriots. And the Patriots. And the Bruins. Every year and around the, the time... Every year around the time that the real Nobel Awards are being um, awarded um, in Oslo, um, the Ig Nobel Awards are announced, and they have a ceremony every year, and it's published on, um, it's broadcast on NPR on the Friday after Thanksgiving. Okay. Um, right. And what they do is they go through the world's literature, and they identify papers that they find particularly interesting or amusing, and it is sponsored by the Journal of Improbable Research. And the one that I'm going to talk about is called... Itch relief by mirror scratching, a psychophysical Ooh, study. I and, feel like I know where this is going. And in this study, what they did was they tried to identify whether scratching the, 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 the arm that doesn't itch helps you... <laughs> <laughs> to deal with the itch in the arm, <laughs> that does it. Which itches. So what by they looking did, in a mirror. So by looking in a mirror. So what they oh, did. So what they did is brilliant. they injected a little histamine in the forearm of the left arm, That's which is a chemical that produces a lot of itching. And um, the person had a, obviously had an inclination to itch that. Then they took a mirror and they put it right against their chest so yeah. that when they look down, they see their left arm reflected in the mirror, but because it is the opposite, it looks like the right arm. Yes. And so they found that if you scratch the actual right arm, the, the sensation of itching that you feel in the left arm actually goes away. Okay, uh, I want to know why this is a noble <laughs> award. I totally believe this. I think this is important but research. Apparently it's, apparently, it's based on research that has been done yeah. um, in the in the realm of phantom limbs. Yeah, and that uh, it's been shown to actually um, work in terms of people getting used to the fact that they have a phantom limb and they have pain in that phantom limb. A phantom limb is when somebody loses an arm, they have this this cerebral sensation that that arm still exists, and that people can have pain in their phantom limb, and right. by putting it up to a mirror, right. 
they can actually learn to stop having that pain. Right. right. Oh, they can train themselves amazing. to stop having the pain. Who, I want to know who did the itching. Did they itch themselves or did somebody itch them? They itched themselves. They, I mean, they scratched themselves. Sorry. Good yes. point. Right. Scratched. Right. Wow. So, wow. so they think that this actually might have some therapeutic relevancy. Um, I think it because, absolutely does. Because as all of our mothers have told I us from the very right now. if it itches, don't scratch it because you're just going to make it worse. <laughs> And this is a way out. So this is something that I think every oh. nine-year-old boy in America is going to absolutely. It's going to be carrying around a mirror. It's going to be loving wow. it. That's beautiful. I love that. That is fantastic. Okay. Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I, this was not planned, but but what? I actually I did a, a I, I found this interesting study on the effectiveness of different uh, mosquito repellent uh, chemicals uh, applications or devices. Um, now they're they're of course approaching this from from a much more uh, public health perspective. They're thinking about Zika virus and West Nile virus and yellow fever and Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, and so they focused on Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. Um, but really, what they wanted to know is like, do these things that you, you buy at Target do they do they work? And, um, and some did, and some did not. Um, the beautiful thing about this experiment is that they had this really clever experimental apparatus that they created to test the effectiveness of these different preparations. So they, they put their, their test subject, the volunteer, who was gonna be the bait for the mosquitoes, into a wind bait? tunnel. Breeze tunnel. A breeze tunnel, excuse me. This a breeze thing tunnel. you know about? Chris and I were, we were talking, talking about. Okay, it. All so right. you have to imagine this person sitting in this little tunnel, and behind them is a fan that is blowing wind past them at two meters per second. So a gentle breeze. So it's a breeze tunnel, and then Sounds downwind lovely. is the mosquito cage, and the mosquito cage is spaced at different distances away from the subject so that the mosquitoes are in this mesh cage and they can smell the person because the breeze is blowing past the person towards the mosquitoes. And the mosquito cage is in, in three sections. One is where they're, they're initially placed into the center and then there's a, a compartment in front closer to the person emitting the odors and the one further away. Upwind so, and downwind. Upwind and downwind, exactly. And so the question is, which way do the mosquitoes fly? Oh. Right? Do they go towards the, the bait or do they go away from the bait? Because, you know, we it's, have to, right? Yeah. Maybe they'd be repelled. Yeah. And so um, they had a positive Sorry. control where there was no... Um, applications put onto this person and the mosquitoes have been prepped by, you know, making them a little bit hungry by giving them water for 24 hours, but no food. So they were hungry mosquitoes. They had actually no four, mosquitoes four positive controls. They, they had, they had several different because controls. Because we know that there are different people <laughs> attract they had mosquitoes. Different different we definitely know but, that. Yeah. That is a big issue in my family. And so when they had just the, 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 the volunteer uh, wafting their natural odors towards the mosquitoes, about 90% of the mosquitoes chose to, to fly towards the the bait, the person, in other words. Whereas they didn't have a person in it, about 87% of them went in the opposite direction, basically being blown passively away by the wind. Yep. So they're fighting against an air gradient to do this. And then they put all sorts of different sprays and, and devices on them. And the devices were uh, ranged from a bunch of wearables. There was the off clip-on device, the personal sonic mosquito repeller <laughs> device, which emits like an ultrasonic noise that's supposed to irritate mosquitoes. Oh, that has got to be bogus. There's something called Mosquitovert and something called Mosquito No. And these are uh, both devices that, that are uh, wafting uh, the geranium oil um, extract. Mm. Now, of these... I think you cook with that, right, Don? The off clip-on was no, very different. <laughs> Because that, this is a little thing that's a portable fan that actually creates a vapor of metafluorin, which is a pyrethroid. Uh, it's, a, it's an insecticide, insecticide. insecticide. But it's also an, a repellent insecticide. It has both properties. Uh, okay. Um, so and that was one. And, and then they also did um, the Cutter Lemon Eucalyptus, the Kids Herbal Armor, which is a mix of herbal oils. What about Skin So Soft? Skin So Soft <laughs> is on the list. <laughs> and the the Repel Sportsman Max Formula, which is a deep 40%. And? And a 98% deep. And they did these, then they did the Citronella Candles. And the result and is? And the result was? Just rubbing yourself on a banana. I've heard that's really... <laughs> Actually, you have not. Great. Come on. The experiment oh, yeah. must Banana. be Seriously? repeated. Yeah. You never heard that? No, I never did. All right, get to the, get to okay, the punchline. Okay, so the, the off clip-on, the thing that, that, that creates the vapor trail, highly effective. Oh. Okay, so it uh, compared with the... Uh, a, uh, the positive control where 88.8% of the mosquitoes went towards the victim. Uh, with that thing on the victim, 27% went towards them. Ooh. So it was very effective. I got to give me one of those. Invisiband, the personal sonic repeller, and the mosquito vert. Bogus. No effect whatsoever. Skins us off? Bogus. The, the citronella uh, uh, candle, no effect whatsoever. The Avon skin so soft, sorry, Don. Oh, no effect whatsoever. No effect at all. Well, practically none. It was a 78% versus 88%. So... 
Hear Basically that, ineffective. Is that, is the, <laughs> the kids' herbal armor, mix of, of herbal oils, ineffective. But what worked really well was the cutter lemon eucalyptus. Was the most effective of all, followed by the DEET. Cutter, 98%. Lemon eucalyptus. Was the, was the best one. You heard it here, folks. Interesting. So great news. Um, wow. Cool. That very is cool. really cool. Very that, cool. That nice very little cool. study. And that was published in the Journal of Insect Science, 2017. Lead author, Stacy Rodriguez. I usually, uh, that's a beach read for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think you should read it before you get to the beach. That's a good point. All right. So I'm going to end by going back to the H index that Don brought up earlier. So uh, scholars are, are under increasing pressure to get the information out there about how good they are. And one new way of doing this, I'm now itching. <laughs> Okay, you, you talked about scratching. You talked about mosquito bites, and now I'm sitting here scratching constantly. Somebody get me a mirror. So uh, And so one of the ways to, to, to get your name out there is, and I do encourage everybody to do this, is to build a Google Scholar profile. So Google uh, has gotten into the market of trying to um, determine uh, how good authors are and to come up with sort of a, I'm guessing it's going in a, a social media type direction. And what they're doing is they're cataloging, cataloging citations and all the authors of the citations. And you can then go in and set up a profile with just a Google account and come up with a citation page for yourself. And then what they will do is calculate things like the H-index, um, but it's also just an easy way for people to find you. So the H-index is, is one of many measures of how productive you are, um, which is it's a pretty flawed measure, but the idea is it counts the your highest – from your highest cited publication to your lowest cited publication, the number of papers you have with that many citations. I think I have a few that are never cited. You, we all do, but you weigh more than the rest of us. No, just, <laughs> that's, that's probably not true. true. No, he's lighter uh, than the rest true. of us. That's not true. Uh, so, in other words, if you had one paper cited one time, your H index would be one. If you had ten pipe papers cited at least ten times, you'd have an H index of ten. So, the higher it is, the supposedly better you are as a researcher, um, and it's been shown to be highly problematic for a lot of reasons. In particular, it's largely a function of age, right? The older you are, the more the longer papers are out, the more citations you get. But anyway, let's leave that aside and let's just pretend that it's a fine index. So Google Scholar has gotten into this uh, field. And when you go in and you set up your profile, it finds all the papers with your name. Uh, and there was a, a guy out there who wanted to, to demonstrate uh, that the Google Scholar H index isn't necessarily the most reliable. And so what he did was he created a profile using the procedures that you're supposed to use. Only what he did was he uh, set up a profile for this author called et al. <laughs> Seriously? So for, for all oh, publications, so for those you don't know, for if, you, if there's too many authors to, to list, so they'll just trim it at, say, six authors and end it with et al. And Google picks this up. <laughs> and so he created a Google profile for et al., who uh, et al. has over two and a half million citations and an H index of 331, which is pretty darn good. That's got to be that. That's got to be the top. The it's best. pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. And uh, he, there, he, on his website, he comments on the fact that uh, Google manually uh, shut this down shortly after, about uh, three months or so after he did it. But you can actually, if you, <laughs> if you do a Google search for Google Scholar et al., you will still find this page. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how, but I just thought it was a, an brilliant. amusing way to demonstrate that there are limitations to these electrons. It's an academic hack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we have come to the end of our show. Uh, if you've got any feedback for us on this or any other show, or you want to suggest a, a topic or a study that you want us to take a look at, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthX, at PopHealthX, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website. We also would like to thank Leslie Talalian, who's the Director of Lifelong Learning, for supporting this podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. <laughs>